Welcome to Hunter and Craft Radio. Hey everyone, Evan Lewis here with another episode of Hunter and Craft Radio. This week, I sat down with Ankur Nagpal, the founder of usefedora.com. Fedora is a service that lets you host online courses right on your website. It gives you control of your branding, student data, and pricing so that you can make money from your knowledge. What they're really trying to do is power the next generation of millionaire teachers. Ankur's a really amazing entrepreneur and a guy that I respect a lot. Today we had a fantastic chat. I look forward to hearing your feedback, but without any further ado, here's myself and Ankur. So really, the, you know, the six kind of core topics we're going to go through, um, so we're going to go through, you know, your background and kind of, again, how you got to be founding Fedora. Uh, we're going to talk about early stage startup growth strategy and customer mm-hmm. acquisition. Then we're going to talk about uh, the AngelList fundraising experience. So you guys uh, have raised, you know, a couple million dollars now, a million dollars specifically through AngelList, um, and really would love to hear your insights on, you know, that whole process and, you know, your sort of best lessons for, um, you know, other people who, who may be looking into going down that road. Uh, then we're going to get into product development tips. Uh, I think you've uh, got some really great lessons on that. And then lastly, we'll, we'll last two things really into customer acquisition metrics. So we're going to look at uh, a little bit of how you look at cost of customer acquisition and you know lifetime value. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the future of education and kind of your vision for, uh, for where that's going and how Fedora fits into it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, grew up, I grew up in a small country in the Middle East in Oman. Um, and my parents always wanted me to come to the United States for college, which was, I don't know, I, I think he felt that he did not have that opportunity, so he wanted to give that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided, so I came here when I was 17, went to school at University of California, Berkeley. Um, like any good Indian kid, I was like, um, I'm going to be a computer engineer without really even knowing what it entailed. Um, I, you know, I figured, I, I figured I'm good with computers, like I guess that's like a decent major. Um, I started out at computer science at Berkeley, um, was interning at Amazon my freshman year, which was in 2007. And that's kind of when I realized I'm a shitty engineer. It's like really bad timing because I was in Seattle. I was like, you know, working, interning as an engineer. Everyone, like my parents were like, this is great. This is amazing. Um, I realized I was bad at it. Like I was just not good. I didn't understand what was going on. Um, I also found out that I really didn't enjoy it. Like I didn't particularly like my, you know, I was not like, a huge fan of the experience. Um, and also being in Seattle at the time, I was 18, I had, you know, no fake ID, didn't know too many people. I had so much free time on my hands. And that coincided with the launch of the Facebook platform, which was pretty fortunate timing. And again, being the good Indian kid I am, I was a huge cricket fan. And I was like, okay, I'm going to build a fantasy cricket game because I love fantasy football. I love cricket. I don't know why, like, the intersection does not exist. And that's how I kind of got started with like entrepreneurial ventures almost was when I built a fantasy cricket game for Facebook. And I don't know how many, how much you remember of the early days of the Facebook platform, but it was the most insanely viral platform that, you know, there's never been anything else like it. Um, In later applications I built, like we literally would go from zero users to half a million users in a matter of days. Um, You know, I've just never seen anything like that before. So that's how I got started, you know, in the world of kind of entrepreneurship, just building all these Facebook applications, initially for beer money, 
in college and then you know soon realized like fuck like this is a real business um maybe maybe my chemistry midterm does not matter that much if you know i can i can build applications that make money but that's kind of what got me you know started down this path that's interesting. I didn't really realize, but I mean, I knew about the cricket.com thing, but that's, you know, a very, very similar way to how I got into tech is building. I mean, my thing was hockey, right? So yeah. I built uh, you know, a hockey website called MindPuck that was basically people got fed up with me posting too many hockey highlights on Facebook. So I was like, yep. all right, well, I might as well build a website for it. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't make as much beer money as I think you did on uh, yeah. on your cricket stuff. But if you I, could- no, I didn't. I didn't put the cricket. That was what was funny, right? I, okay. And it's sad because that was actually a good application. Like it was mm-hmm. better than any of the shit I built later that made money. <laughs> but it was almost like it had too much functionality for Facebook. Like there was too much. Like it was too useful. Um, I moved on to building like silly personality quizzes that are like you know answer these eight questions and we'll tell you how good a lover are you <laughs> and that exploded like that made about like 20 times more money in a week and i was like okay i'm doing this wrong maybe like you know the goal shouldn't be providing value and utility but rather something that's viral and grows fast <laughs> so walk me through that in terms of the like how you would get paid for that stuff it's it's all through like ads that were yep. running at the same time as people are going through these quizzes yep so, in so I mean, basically, I built Facebook apps from 2007 to 2011. For the first two years, my entire revenue strategy was purely display advertising. Um, we would generally make about two, about a penny per daily active user, um, which means it would take a million daily active users to make 10k. Hmm. Uh, that's a, about approximately. So it didn't monetize very well on a per user basis, but you know, the goal was you get a lot of users. Um, towards the end, we got more sophisticated and we made about half our money through display advertising. So we still made about a penny a user. But on top of that, we also made a penny a user through virtual currency, where, for instance, you know, we'd have a friend quiz where you'd get a notification be like, Ankur answered the question, um, do you think Evan is fun to hang out with? And you'll get a notification being like, where you have the opportunity to find out what I said. But in order to find out what I said, you either have to answer like 20 more questions to spread the application more, or pay us a dollar indirectly. By indirectly, you know, you'd have an offer, like you can download Internet Explorer 9. We did a deal with Microsoft. You know, they gave us a 100K budget to like sell 100K downloads of Internet Explorer 9. Um, and you could download that and we'd make a dollar every time you downloaded that. So that was the second revenue channel we added later, which worked as well as advertising, literally doubling our income at the time on a per user basis. That's interesting in terms of like, you know, the, uh, the early sort of notification yep. strategies and stuff, right? Like, you know, you get pinged saying, uh, here's what I did. And like, yep. I've, I've been reading a lot of um, near AL's yeah. uh, stuff on kind of, you know, getting people hooked. Near, in. Near, near's, near's, near's great. He's a customer. He's a Fedora customer too. So he has a special place in our hearts. He's the man, totally. Well, that loops in well nicely into kind of um, how that brought you to, or how did you come to founding Fedora? I know, I mean, you were doing some teaching on Udemy, but I'd love to know kind of the the genesis of uh, of founding the company. So I think essentially what happened is post-2011, I made a good amount of money on Facebook applications, but I didn't fully know what I wanted to do next. Like, you know, I, I mean, I did a lot of different ventures, some of which made more money, but I never quite, you know, had the fulfillment I wanted. Um, that led me to somewhat instinctively move to New York just because I wanted to change. I thought, let me refresh, you know, scenery, see a new city, move to New York. 
And in New York is where I got caught up doing a little bit of online teaching. Well, a little bit of teaching in person and online teaching just because a guy I met there is like, I'm making money teaching online. Why don't we do this together? Um, so I started doing a little bit of teaching on Udemy and soon realized that, you know, online teaching is kind of great. Like I see this being the future, but by virtue of being on a marketplace like Udemy, there's only so far I can actually take this. Um, it's very hard to make, you know, more than a thousand, two thousand dollars on Udemy just because you don't have ownership of your students. You can't kind of drive marketing to your classes because if you do, they're just going to buy your class and then go to a competitive class. It just didn't really make any sense. So that led me to build the first version of, you know, what became Fedora. Um, just to date this a little, this is September, October 2013. Gotcha. Cool. Um, okay, well, so a couple questions on that. I mean, uh, in terms of, I guess we can maybe get into the, uh, the what are you guys doing differently? Because, I mean, from my perspective, I've seen, you know, so many ed tech companies uh, yep. doing very similar things to that, right? Like that was... <laughs> that was our exact pitch in yeah. a lot of ways uh, with eProf, right? It's like, yeah. you know, you have, again, you have no ownership. We started as a, a Udemy, but for um, like live online learning, yep. right? So that was our, that was how oh, we Oh, you guys actually started with the marketplace? We started with a marketplace back in, you know, uh, middle of 2012. <clears throat> yep. And, um, you know, again, it's, I mean, building a marketplace is incredibly difficult and you need to be well-funded. We have no, we had no idea what we were doing. Yep. Um, and, you know, just really had no idea how to go about the customer acquisition stuff. Um, and, you know, tried to do a little bit of the hackery you did in terms of, you know, scraping email lists and stuff like that, but that never really got off the ground. And that led us to pivoting to, uh, being a B2B, uh, sort of white labeled, you know, Shopify for education, yep. helping education businesses, uh, you know, deliver their services online. But, you know, again, we differentiated from, uh, I mean, we we were always sort of focused on the live education stuff, and that's what I you know had told you uh, yep. when we met before was kind it's of our fatal downfall, mistake. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so why don't I mean I know I have a huge amount of respect for you know kind of the the growth hacking work that you and Conrad, your partner, have done. Just you know, it's so uh, such an interesting smart mix of you know technology, know how, and you know testing, and um, really just figuring out. Uh, how to your make problem. things sticky? I, I feel like I feel like you're overrating <laughs> a lot of what we do. No, uh, no, like, I'm not. <laughs> one, I'm one. I mean, okay, obviously, you know, I, I think I think we're we're great, fucking great at growth, but I still think the word <laughs> growth hacking is is a little bit of bullshit. Yep. Um, I also think that like being a startup, there's just so much you can do that it's a great you know it's a, it's great to talk the talk about yeah we test this we test that in reality we test almost nothing just because. <laughs> It's hard, you know, there's only so many hours you have in the day. And my personal outlook towards testing, especially until while you're still strapped on resources, is just try more things. Um, even if you don't have the right testing framework, some yep. things work so much better than others that it's very easy to, you know, see like, holy shit, this is effective and double down on that. Like, you know, we've never actually gotten to the point where we've had the bandwidth to like A-B test like landing page copy. We just yep. haven't. Well, what I would argue there is you uh, you guys are specifically good though at finding figuring out those things to try because that's yep. the that's the first sort of battle yep. for a lot of people right is think you know having the creativity and the know how yep. a to you know think about that strategy but also be able to execute it because a lot of it does you know come down to technical stuff yep. whether it's I think I know, think a lot of a lot of a lot of things we did right were being aggressive enough yep. like a lot of people would kind of hold back. Yep. But one of the things we did is we built an automated way to import a Udemy course in. Yep. 
that was a complete game changer. All of a sudden, people, you know, in the past, someone would sign up for an account and be like, okay, this is great. I'll come back eventually, but never come back. Yep. Now with our import from Udemy Flow, all of a sudden, any Udemy instructor could import all their courses in in a matter of like 15 minutes. That's yep. a complete game changer, right? You can then launch your own Fedora store in less than an hour as opposed to like two months. Wicked, yeah. And that, I mean, again, that's a technical hurdle that you know, you guys, a lot of people wouldn't be able to overcome and they yep. would say, oh no, we, you know, we don't, you know, Udemy is going to get mad at us. We don't want to, we yep. don't want uh, you know, to try that. But that's, you know, a thing that really sets you apart is you are super aggressive, right? And you are, yep. you know, um, you know, you're trying to build a, a really impactful business. Yep. And, and we got, um, we got fortunate because we initially built our business off the heels of Udemy's success. Yep. Um, and that's a that's that's a good like that's something I want to emphasize for people listening. Yep. Is if you can find some some bigger trend, some trend that's bigger than you, and find a way to ride that wave, um, that just makes your life a lot easier. And for us, you know, it was fortunate that Udemy grew as fast as they did because if they had not grown as fast, we probably would not have grown as fast because our first like out of our first hundred customers, probably sixty to seventy would have been Udemy teachers. Gotcha. Um, now the ratio is down to probably more like 25%. But initially that was our market and we just kind of like rode that wave. And we got lucky because like a few weeks into running our business, Udemy decided to change the revenue share they gave people. They used to give people 70% of sales. They changed it to 50%, pissing so many people off at just the right time because <laughs> they angered so many people and all of them are like, well, you know, I'm kind of annoyed. Where do I go? And, you know, we had just started up then and that helped us a lot initially. Interesting. What's your relationship with them been like? I mean, obviously they, I know, I think uh, when we talked that very first time, they had maybe, I don't know, they've been sending you death threats or whatever it was. But like, No, I mean, overall, like on an individual basis, I know a lot of employees at the company that yeah. I have a great relationship with. Yeah. Um, their platform team had, had banned announcements from our account, which is relatively, you know, small, like not a huge thing. Not a huge thing. Yep. Um, at this point, I think they have, they're growing so fast and they're incredibly successful in their own right. Like, a, you know, there is, I think, $50 million recently. They're growing by about a million users every two or three weeks that they almost don't care just because, like, when you're when you're at a company that's growing so fast, you have enough other shit to worry about. Yeah. Um, that they're not super concerned about us. The other big difference is their ultimate user is the student's. And our ultimate user is a teacher. Yep. So in some ways, we're almost catering to different markets. I mean, of course, they care about their teachers. And, you know, they're, they're a little bit concerned that they're losing a lot of their top teachers to us because we're working with most of their top teachers. But at the same time, when, you know, when, you're, when they're making 100K a day selling courses, like that, you know, that definitely softens the blow a lot and, you know, helps them focus on bigger picture things. And it's also, it's also inevitable. Like, you know, no matter how well we do, there's going to be marketplaces that succeed. And no matter how well you build a marketplace, there's going to be a solution like Fedora that will succeed. Like yeah. we will both exist independent of each other regardless. Hmm. Are you still using the Shopify for education line? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit less. Yeah. Um, only because um, I think when you, I've realized when you're, at least when you're pitching, like Shopify for education is a great way for people to get like in a second what your idea is about mm -hmm. but when I'm actually pitching the company I've found it a lot more effective to talk about the bigger picture yeah. just the idea that there's going to be a lot of teachers making a lot of money teaching online and we are the technology to power them it yeah. makes the idea almost seem grander 
um, which matters a lot when you're you know pitching because when you're pitching so much of what you say is semantics and then we'll get into that um, that chop five education is almost like holding us back right totally it's so funny we've been we've been doing the same pitch for like that yeah. uh, so many of the similarities for our old investor pitches and stuff like that okay really I want to get into the the next thing is, is the angelist fundraising yeah. but really quickly on you know the the um, the early stage growth stuff uh, one thing that stood out to me that you, I noticed you guys did back when I was checking you out as a competitor is you had the um, just a sim- simple Facebook group of all of your early instructors, instructors. your early adopters, yep. right? And I thought that was, you know, such a simple but brilliant way of really, you know, just showing that you guys care and building community. And yep. you've always been, you know, um, a very sort of forward founder and, you know, every, it's very sort of personal touch at the outset. If Like, what are some of the best things that you think um, you guys did in terms of really building that early community and kind of, uh, you know, fostering kind of your champions? Yep. I think, I mean, again, that was almost accidental. Like, we did not know how high impact that would be when we first started it. When we first started it, I was just getting frustrated with the amount of email I had to deal with that I figured the Facebook group is a great way to let people answer each other's questions. But the one thing I definitely did well early, and it's, it, it was also easy to, right? At the time, it was just me working on this product. As one person, like, you know, I was very deeply vested. And I cared, like when people would post something on the Facebook group, very often, like if they had like, you know, something broken, there were times when I would see what was broken, I would fix it, I would push new code to the server. And I will again caveat this, but I was a bad developer. So we had no QA, I could push shit to the server in like 30 seconds. So I would, yeah, so you can, like, don't, I don't recommend this, but like, you know, I would see, I would see a bug report come in, find it, fix it, push code to the server. It would go live. I'd post back on the Facebook group saying fixed sometimes within five minutes. Mm-hmm. And that blew people's minds because yep. no company with actual good engineering can ever do that. Like there's no way we can do that now, right? Like now we have a staging server. We have QA. Like it has to pass through certain tests. Yep. At the time I could. And what I did is I, I cared a lot. Like I, you know, I I accepted friend requests from like instructors. I don't do that anymore. But like I actually like, you know, they would hit me up on Facebook chat, which again is not something super fun for me, but like that's how deeply I cared. I would talk to them on Facebook chat. Like I've I've I made personal relationships with so many of our early customers. Some of them invested in us too when we raised money. Um it's not scalable, but it was definitely something I'm happy I did at the at the time. I cannot do this right now. I don't want to do this right now. At the time it was absolutely essential to do. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean Everyone always says do things that don't scale, and that's uh, yeah. you know that's a beautiful example of that. So yeah. kudos. Um, okay, let's dive into AngelList. So obviously, uh, AngelList is you know um, growing in- incredibly quickly as, as a platform. Um, they've done a lot of interesting stuff with you know now like syndicates and all that type of thing. I mean, I think you were raising. Um, it was literally like a week uh, after we we yeah. met was that you started your uh, sort of angelist push. Um, I'd love if you could just you actually. Know, walk wow, us holy shit! That. I just realized it's been a year since I saw you because that was right before the Fourth of July weekend. Yeah, we went live last Fourth of July weekend in 2014. Huh. Um, but yeah, it was great. So the one I will caveat it with, you know, the reason angelist worked really well for us is we had one strong offline investor. And to make AngelList work, you need to have one strong offline investor because otherwise, you know, there's a lot of random people trying to raise money. The, a great way they distinguish between a quality company and not is one that has pre-committed capital from one strong investor. So I think the ultimate playbook for raising kind of a seed round is find one strong investor offline 
and that comes down to hustling, you know, however you want it, whether you find this person in person, whether you like have a friend of a friend or whatever, but you try and get a hundred K or so commitment from someone offline and then leverage that into a strong angelist profile, which is what we did. We had Matt Brezina, who was the founder of a company called Zobni that was the first Y Combinator batch and then sold to Yahoo for $60 million. He was our first kind of champion and um, he invested 100K first and then kind of said, okay, let's make this public on AngelList. And then when he made that public on AngelList, I've, I've also guessed had a bit of an unfair advantage that I've known the founder of AngelList for a while. So I pinged him and what he did is he then sent it out to the entire AngelList mailing list and we went live over the 4th of July weekend. And by the time it was, I don't know, the following Tuesday or Wednesday, we had a few hundred thousand dollars in commitments and a ton of intros from interested investors that wanted to talk, which was, you know, like massive because to get to that point, like you spend so much time like pitching people. And I mean, you've been through the process, right? Yeah. Like we didn't even do the process well. Like we still don't have a deck. We've never had a deck. We might need one at a series A, but we didn't even do that. But like, it was still painful. Like You go to a lot of meetings. People are like kind of interested. Some of them tell you they're not interested. And then you have some obnoxious investors that are like just never tell you anything ever again. You're like, I guess that's a no. But like, I'd really appreciate it if you told me so. <laughs> well, but Angelus, the script was reversed, right? They came to you. You got to decide. Yeah, totally. It's, um, I'm jealous <laughs> of, the, yeah. of the way that, that got handled for you guys. I mean, I, you were getting into it. A little bit, uh, just you know, a couple minutes ago, but really in terms of kind of selling the the bigger vision. One thing that's you know stood out to me from you know um, doing the eprof stuff is you really need to you know you need to have that vision of what the business is going to be like you know three, five, even ten years from now, right? And and really sell it big because yeah. you know for me my my big thing with uh, with startups that I've realized is that you, I mean you know, you have to think aggressive and think, uh, and think big and, you know, being incredibly confident because, you know, sex sells, right? Like that's what investors really, really buy into. I mean, if they're looking for 10 X on their investment, um, you know, and that's again, what I think you do so well is you are, you know, incredibly forward and confident in your abilities. So in terms of kind of selling, um, you know, selling the vision and kind of, yeah, you have to, you have to sell the dream, right? Because for an investor, yeah, 10 X is great. But what they really want is optionality for a thousand X, right? They don't want you to be a thousand X, but they want to know that there's a chance, however small, that you could be a thousand X company. If you look at the kind of the top venture funds, you organize them by return. The top venture funds right now are people that either got into Uber, Facebook, maybe Twitter, maybe a couple others, or they didn't. It's that simple. If you're to be a successful investor, you either had one of those deals or you did not. The, your track record doesn't matter. Your batting percentage doesn't matter. Um, it just matters how big was your biggest. Hmm. And when you understand that, you get a lot more sense into what investors look for. They don't necessarily want you to like, you know, they don't want you to say you're going to be a $10 billion company or a billion dollar company. What they want to know is that that's what you want. Like that's interesting to you. You're not going to sell your company for $50 million. Cause even if, you know, you raise money and they make a 10 X, that's great. But that's the best case scenario you promise. And even though you delivered the best case scenario, that's still not what's going to make their fund. Um, so when you understand that, the fact that what an investor wants is just, just the chance to give them an Uber, the chance to give them a Facebook, that's what they're primarily looking for. Um, and honestly, if that's not what your goal is, like if your goal is not to build something that could be infinitely large, I would find alternate investment vehicles rather than kind of raising venture money. Nice. Yeah, that's wicked. So in terms of, 
Fedora, I mean, you guys always at a high level pitch, you know, the creating these millionaire teachers, right? So yep. like, um, yeah, what's, you know, what's the quick skinny on that sort of yep. massive long-term vision that you guys are pitching that so, got you that money? Yeah, so what, what we think is that the best and most successful teachers of the future, the most successful online teachers of the future, um, are going to be t- what we call teacher entrepreneurs. We think, I mean, I'm a huge believer in um, empowering people and just the idea that like more people can and should be entrepreneurs. And I think teachers are perfectly poised to be teacher entrepreneurs. And because of the internet, you know, kind of having infinite skill, um, you know, you have teachers in Korea and Japan making millions of dollars a year. I think it's a matter of time before more of that starts happening in America and Canada and stuff. And yeah, yeah, that's that's the vision that you know we believe so passionately in um, that we you know definitely talked to our investors about and you know found a good group of people that held a similar vision. Just the idea that like individuals should control their own destiny. Like you don't have to be an adjunct professor at a university struggling to make tenure and like then realizing it's not worth it when you can you know just when you can go direct. You can find students who want to learn from you, make them pay you, and build your business that way. Totally. And that's, you know, that meshes so well with, A, I mean, you know, the, the vision that we had with, with EProf, but also with the vision for Hunter and Craft, right? And really yep. just how, you know, this entire project is about sharing learning, right? And that's, you know, we're doing sort of a micro form of what, what your teachers do right now. It is like, you know, putting, putting their knowledge out there and making it available for people because, you know, there's so much yep. great, valuable stuff. Um, and so, yeah, that, that meshes really nicely. I mean, me personally, like I, as I, you know, go through this, uh, this Hunter and Craft project, like, you know, there's, there's so much good stuff, especially in the startup world, right? Like, you know, uh, doing a course on potentially enterprise sales or, you know, strategic product development or all this type of stuff that, um, is a, it's fun to create and B, I mean, there's so many people now that are looking for these sort of passive revenue streams, right? And, um, you know, setting, setting those up, um, you know, through online courses is, um, you know, really, it, it's such a such a no brainer. If you have, you know, the the content, um, you just go about creating it, and then you you know you can sell it forever, right? And it's also, it it fits so well with kind of this movement that you know we talk about a lot with my current company, Post Beyond, is you know really the it's a personal branding thing, right? Yep. It's like you know putting yourself out there. Uh, you know, you're on video, you're showing, you're you're a thought leader, and you're sharing your knowledge, um, and that really helps. You know, you, you stole, build the following. You're, you're like stealing my webinar content. Like that's like a third <laughs> of the webinar we give people. Um, but no, definitely. And we got we got very lucky because in the first, I want to say sometime midway through last year, we got our first, you know, what we call million dollar teacher, yep. which are which was unprecedented. We didn't expect to find someone like that so soon. We found these two guys, John and Elliot. They're, I guess now they're 28, they're 27 at the time. Um, they built a million dollar business teaching people how to build iPhone apps. And what was really cool about that is these guys are not computer science majors. They're not like app developers at, you know, big companies. They're two dudes that struggled to teach themselves this. Like they taught themselves how to code. They struggled at it. They sucked at it. They finally kind of learned. But because of their struggles, they became good teachers. Like they're more relatable to someone learning to code than, you know, a kid that's programmed since he was nine years old. Like, that's not relatable, right? If, you, if you're trying to learn how to code in, the, in your mid-20s, you're not going to find the prodigy that knew how to code at nine. You'd rather talk to the people that, you know, sucked at it, finally learned it, and that was their story, you know? Like, they came from not knowing how to code to, like, doing that, 
and making over a million dollars last year teaching other people how to do that while traveling the world. And I was like, that, you know, that you are the kind of people we believe in. That's that's who we want to power. And I don't know, I feel pretty privileged that that happens so early in, in the company's lifetime. Wicked. Um, okay, so we're going to talk a little bit more in the second half here about, uh, you know, some more of your favorite uh, Fedora teachers. We're going to talk a little bit about strategic product development and customer acquisition. Uh, but right now we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This portion of the Hunter and Craft podcast is brought to you by Post Beyond, your infrastructure for social business. Check us out at postbeyond.com. Cool. So we're back, and uh, now we're going to dive into some strategic product development uh, tips. So the inspiration for this really comes from, again, you know, my uh, my experience running eProf, and um, you know how I was doing a lot of the product development. So you know, when I started eProf, I had you know just learned to code about six months earlier, and um, you know, quite frankly, we kind of just went crazy on building features and not really knowing, uh, you know, what what our users wanted. We didn't have enough, you know, of a core user base to uh, to really, you know, get a sort of crowdsourced knowledge of uh, what we should be building. So instead, we kind of, you know, just thought, hey, we think people, you know, would want this. So, uh, you know, we're going to build it and see what happens. And that's really, you know, kind of <laughs> the direct opposite of what you should be doing. And I know Anchor last our last chat we had, you know, you really focus on only building features that are going to move the needle and have some, you know, some clear ROI for you. So I'd love if you could just sort of talk about how you've taken, you know, feedback from the Fedora community and prioritized uh, feature development and really focused on, you know, stuff that's in the business's best interest. Yeah, absolutely. But before that, I mean, I should preface it with that's something we learned too. Um, when I first started Fedora, I was again over eager. Like I was like people, you know, anyone asked for something, I'm like, boom, done. I just want to make you happy. Um, I soon realized that that's incredibly not intelligent because when it comes to building features, we learned this the hard way. And I'll, I'll give you a specific example of how we learned this the hard way. The cost of a feature is not the cost of building it. Like at the time, I was like, oh, easy. I can build that in two days done what i didn't account for is the fact that we have to support that feature forever and a lot of times i mean i'm sure like as i say this you're like live video right like yep it's not the cost of building something it's the cost of supporting something that's more important so one of the features we built too early is we built like incredibly good like affiliate tracking so you could invite an affiliate to your school we auto generate links for them we do the tracking we pay them out we did all of that and that's a great feature honestly like it's something I'm happy we have in the product now. But there's a huge in-between period where we shouldn't have done that. Like, it was such a pain to, like, handle. Like, at the end of the tax year last year, we realized we paid out, like, hundreds of affiliates. So we had to collect tax information for all of them and file the appropriate tax forms. We oh, didn't have no. the right... Yeah, it was, like, it's such a complete pain in the ass. Like, relative to the impact of that feature versus what it took out of our company, stupid, stupid. Um and that's, but that's been a learning lesson. Like, so live video is another great example. People keep asking us for live video. Whenever we've experimented with live vid video, we've realized it's not that hard to build some kind of live video integration, even natively. But live video does not really work on the internet as a big concept. Like, even on the internet, find any like live video stream in the world. 
there will be like hundreds of people being like, why isn't this working? It keeps <laughs> freezing. It does not work. And that's what we found with Flora, right? Like there were so we had like so many people blamed the platform just because live video is painful that we realized that the cost of supporting it is too high to ever make it worth building natively. So for live video, we tell people here are five plugins you can use. If it doesn't work, you contact them. But we're not going to do it natively because the cost of supporting that feature is so large that you know it just does not work out. Yeah, and you know, for us with with eProf again, we were so we were so enthralled with like you know live video is sexy because it's engaging and you can you know ask questions uh, in real time and all that type of stuff. But the reality is it's just not scalable, right? Like if you if you want to build a business, a we had to build in you know third party technology. So you know if we ever did want to scale, you know yep. we were beholden to them and we we would have to you know really uh, pay them a lot of money. I mean right now with you know things like WebRTC and stuff, you can you know build some. Uh, there, it's become more and more scalable. Um, you know, as, yeah. as technology has evolved, but you know, at the end of the day, you really got to look at what what the instructors want too. I mean, maybe a handful want the live video, uh, but you know, maybe ninety percent. You know, the real core of the customer base they want to you know make the content once and you know not have to deal with it and just you know just collect the money as they go, right? So it's um, yep. really even, even then it blew my mind. Like you know, like I feel like we're we're pretty sophisticated like with the internet like there's a lot of amazing things we can accomplish i've still not found live video with the 100 percent reliability like we do like like we do live webinars all the time we've tried a lot of tools i still can't find something completely foolproof yeah. like you know there's large companies venture back companies companies that raise hundreds of millions of dollars we still can't fully get live video to work i did a google hangout today that just was not like working <laughs> i it's you know it's just the technology just like does not seem to be as foolproof as we'd like it to. And like we have recorded videos and even then like, you know, 0.2% of our users have trouble because, you know, they're using Windows 95 with like IE6. Like, you know, you can do the most foolproof things and you'll still have a cost of supporting it and live video just makes it so much harder. So I wanted to ask you in terms of the, you know, the pieces that you guys have built yourself and the pieces that you guys have strategically chosen to, you know, partner with other companies on through, you know, building in APIs and stuff like that. Like how, how does that work? I mean, you don't have to give too much detail, but kind of, you know, what, how have you guys looked at that in terms of like, you know, the, the payment processing yep. and different other, you know, other things that we've you guys always, have built we've, in? we've always looked to use as many services as possible. Um, where would save us development time, right? Because ultimately time is the most precious commodity. So wherever there are services that are, especially if they're white labeled, if, especially if they're white labeled, right? You don't want to be at a point where you're using a lot of services that kind of aren't branded to you. Yep. But right now on the services side, we use Wistia for video hosting, which is great. Nice. We have 264,000 videos with them. Wow. I, don't, I can't even imagine what a pain it will be to migrate. At some point, we might need to because there are certain requirements they're not hitting for us. Mm -hmm. But yeah, 264,000 videos. That would be a pain to like handle otherwise. We're using File Picker for image and video uploads. You know, We have people upload about 5,000 assets a day. Mm -hmm. Again, handling that would be a massive, massive pain. Um, we use Amazon Web Services for a lot of our delivery. And wherever possible, if we can find the right kind of services to make our life easier, we'll do it. Um, Though the long-term goal with some of those services will be to move off. And an example is we use Discus for comments. That's great. But we're at a point now where, you know, we want to optimize for SEO. We want to optimize for, you know, we want to optimize for single sign-on so people don't have to create a separate account. 
and we're going to look to replace Discus in the next quarter with something native. So, you know, in time, you can always go from like foreign service to native. It's a lot harder to do it the other way around. How do your investors feel about that in terms of, I mean, I had always wondered, I had thought that, you know, the fact that with EPROF, we had built in a bunch of third-party stuff that they would be like, oh, like, where's your technology competitive advantage? Like, how does, how do, how do the investors, investors Our investors that? don't care. Yeah. Um, I think, I think they have high-level trust that I will figure this shit out. Yep. Um, and if not, like, you know, like, they're, and I, I kind of like it that way. They're not super involved day to day. Um Whenever I want something, I text them, I email them. They get back to me really fast. Mm-hmm. But you know, they they treat they treat they treat us like adults. Nice. They're like, you know, we we trust you to build a big business. If I have to like supervise you, like I'm not making good use of my time. Yep. Totally. With Wistia, is that? Uh, I mean, from what I know of them, the beauty of it is they give you a lot of the. The analytics on the video yep. consumption. So is that you guys pull a lot of that? We and pull that and we give it back to our teachers. They love that. With Wistia, we're running into different issues, just mostly because of our scale. Like they're not built to handle, you know, quarter million videos in a single account. Um, but yeah, it's something that like in time we might want to move to something like Amazon. But for now, Wistia is great just because of the analytics. It makes things a lot easier. But if we wanted to, we can, right? Like, that's the thing. It saved us so much time that even if we move off Wistia now, I'll forever be grateful to them because they saved us a lot of time while we built the rest of the business. Gotcha. Um, and, okay, well, let's dive in now. Oh, actually, I remember what I was going to ask. So in terms of your dev team right now, I mean, I know you, in the early days you were doing a lot of the coding, but obviously you're not doing massive, any of that. massive mistake. Like, if, I, <laughs> if there's one big mistake... I coded for too long because when we got real engineers, we had to throw away everything I did. So we were in this weird position where the company, where the product had been active for like seven or eight months and we had to start development from scratch. And then there's awkward six month period when the new version was being built and the old version was not being updated, um, which was not great at all. It was actually what like, I mean, we have not had a fatal mistake, but that was as close as ever to like being like, we fucked up. It's just stupid. <laughs> so since then, I've stayed very far away from the code. Um, and we now have, you know, a very talented team doing most of it. Yeah. So how many, what's the team look like right now? How many engineers and what's kind of the breakdown of, uh, of the team as it stands? Yeah, absolutely. So we have four full-time engineers. We have one person that spends his time between support and development. Um, we have Conrad heading up the content team with um, two people, Ashley and Allison, under him. And then we have Andrew, who's helping us on marketing, acquisition, webinars. And then you have me that does random shit every single day. <laughs> so, and then we have Ryan. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And then we have, and then we have Ryan too, that also helps Andrew with the webinars and I guess special projects. Nice, and you're just the pretty face on webinars, I guess. Pretty much, um, <laughs> I just I just show up after Andrew and Allison have done all the hard work, making the deck, coming up with the pitch, and I just show up and like stand from my computer and shout for an hour. <laughs> okay, so that leads nicely into customer acquisition uh, strategies and stuff. I mean, obviously, um, you know, a big thing that stood out to me that. Um, when I was building ePROF is really, you know, trying to figure out all the science behind, you know, your cost of customer acquisition and, uh, you know, the lifetime value of your customer. We don't have to get too deep into kind of the, you know, the science of that, but, you know, I'd love uh, if you could talk about, you know, what's really been moving the needle for you guys in terms of 
you know, acquiring customers yep. or maybe some stuff that you guys have done in terms of, you know, changing your sign-up process. You mentioned the Udemy thing, but, you know, some of the yep. best tips you have on that in terms of, you know, really uh, acquiring customers at a, you know, at a high growth rate. Yep. So when it comes to our acquisition funnel, there's two big things that matter. One is how many new people create an account every day. And creating an account is a free step. Um, so just looking at how many different people decide to start an online school every single day on Fedora. Right now, for the last few weeks, we've been tracking about 85 people a day. Um, Want to get it to 100 people a day very soon. Um, that's, that's the first big metric. That, the second big metric that matters is how many of these people are eventually becoming productive customers. And I'm defining a productive customer as someone that either starts selling courses so we make a transaction fee or they upgrade to a paid account. So on the first one, the inherent reason why I love this business, more active schools we have, the more people kind of find a power by Fedora link, the more people come back and, you know, it creates a very good, like, self-perpetuating cycle with, with a very, very slow on-ramp time, right? Like, it takes a long time to have enough schools so that network effect kick in. So that's a big part of, you know, why we're growing today. Outside of that, you know, we're doing targeted outreach to anyone teaching on marketplaces like Udemy and Skillshare and stuff. That's definitely helping a lot. We're investing tremendously in content. So three out of the 12 people in the company, 25% of the company is working 100% of the time on creating quality content. Actually, I would say almost three and a half because I spend not half my week, maybe a third of my week on assisting them in creating content. Um, so content is easily the biggest, biggest channel for us to get top of the funnel leads. Um, the third thing is, you know, what I would consider a special project. So we did a webinar with AppSumo and Sumo Me last week that drove like, you know, four to 500 signups. Um, and other like, you know, kind of one-off deals just with teachers of ours that are really successful, helping us market Fedora to their audience in return for some kind of, you know, business arrangement on the back end. So all of that is very, very helpful in getting us more leads. Um, our goal still is, you know, I want to get to the point where we're reliably getting hundreds of leads instead of almost 100 leads a day. So you mentioned Near Al, you mentioned Sumo Me, it's like some of these great partners that you guys have been able to uh, to work with. I'd love if you could talk a little bit about you know some of the uh, the key ones that you uh, that you have on board that you've been able to leverage to you know get press and exposure and, and new clients. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, as I said, we got very lucky with you know Bitfountain, which is the two guys that you know got to a million dollars because that was a story we leveraged. We got picked up by a lot of press. So that helped out, you know, a lot. Um, and then other, you know, we've been pretty fortunate. Like a, an example of a deal that happened completely, you know, fortunately is we were hanging out at our old office in New York City and it was a Friday evening. We were all kind of drunk as a team, having a good time. Um, a couple other people in the office joined us and I found out one of the guys sitting next to us was the head of, you know, corporate development at the Next Web, which is a huge blog, 6 million, you know, monthly uniques. Um, soon started talking and realized that, you know, this is a huge opportunity for a big blog to use an online school to build a new monetization channel. So that led us to launch an academy with the Next Web called the Next Web Academy, which drove, you know, a ton of leads to Fedora. And the, just the exciting thing about this business is when you kind of get a good client, you get a lot of people that look up to them. Um, so another example is you work with guy with a with a training program called 30 by 500. They train creatives on how to build online courses. Um, and we love deals where people teach other people how to build online courses because then every single student is a potential user. So we're working with Lewis Howes, for instance. He's launching another course next week. And his course is on 
building online courses. <laughs> uh, so those are like our favorite users because the leverage on kind of powering those schools is so high because, you know, if there's like 500 students in their school, chances are 100 of them are going to come and use our product. And your partner, Conrad, he was an initial sort of user of, of your product as well, right? Like his uh, his school was growthhacking.tv yep. or what was it? Or... Uh, no, nope, learn.growhack.com. <laughs> no, it's funny. It's funny. The guy who ran growthhacker.tv was also our was our second customer. So okay. you're nice. actually you're actually on point there. Okay, there you go. Right on. Um, um, so yeah, Conrad. Conrad was our was a good friend. He's the guy I started teaching with, and for the first you know. First six to eight months, he was like customer number one. He built his business on Fedora, and finally, the following September, I you know convinced him to join on board and actually become a part of our team. So, you know, our customers liked us enough to the degree that one of them actually joined us. Nice, that's awesome. Okay, so we're almost done. Anchor, just want to really get you know if you can crystallize. You know, for someone who's listening and maybe they're thinking about starting a business in you know um, software space your top lessons really that you would share if, uh, you know, if, if they're going to start a business tomorrow, you know, th these are the things that you would want them to know based on kind of the hard knocks and, and the lessons you've learned. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first, my first piece of advice is I think too many people are almost afraid of themselves. Like they're just afraid to kind of take the plunge. Um, I would say, you know, like, like done is better than perfect. Like don't strive for perfection, set an incredibly aggressive deadline and just get to the point where you can ask someone for money. Um, the easiest way to validate any business is to get someone to pay you for it. So my advice would be don't delay like by giving people a lot of free services, by doing free work for them. No, find the smallest thing you can build, like the tiniest, ugliest, dirtiest thing that someone would pay for. Get them to pay you for it and then see if you can find more people like them to pay for stuff. Um, I think I think it was Jason Lumpkin who said, as soon as you can find 10 customers that do not know each other to pay you for something, you have a business. So I would think about what can I do to get to a point to have 10 unrelated people pay me for something, whatever it is that I'm doing. And as soon as you get there, you know, you have a business. Nice. And your favorite books, like what are you reading right now or what are your, kind of your favorite uh, books that have inspired you? Yeah, um, so two different questions, right? Books that inspired me. Um, the book that really kind of set me down this path was Losing My Virginity by Richard Branson. <laughs> and I haven't read the book in, you know, over 10 years. It, it's not actually about how he lost his virginity. Um, but it was like, it was just like a manifesto of like how he went from being like a mediocre student and being like, eh, I'm not a huge fan of this. I'd rather like have fun to building what became, you know, the Virgin Group. And I remember I read it as a teenager. That was the first time I realized that, okay, um, I don't really want a job. I can't, you know, I can't kind of go down the standard path in life that a lot of people go down. Um, so that was probably the book that had the biggest impact on me. I haven't read it in over 10 years, so I have no idea how, like, it holds up. But I found that book, like, you know, hugely instrumental in, in bringing me to where I am today. In terms of what I'm reading right now, um, for the first time in my life, I never in my life read fiction, but I finally started reading, you know, like fiction just because I found it really effective as a way to tune out after work um, when it's not football season. So it's not football <laughs> season right now. Uh, I need to find something to do. I don't really care about TV shows. 
So I just started reading a lot of like, you know, like traditional American fiction, Kurt Vonnegut, Charles Bukowski, just shit that, you know, most people do when they're like 16 that <laughs> I never, I never did. Um, just, just for fun. Yeah, nice. that's, that's been pretty cool. Nice. You're not an audio book guy, are you? No, I'm not an audiobook guy. I'm not a Kindle guy. I like <laughs> fucking like physical books. Well, that's a wrap, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you check out usefedora.com and look up Ankur Nagpal on Twitter. And of course, make sure you follow your good friends at Hunter and Craft. Check out our site, hunterandcraft.com. And ideally, sign up to our newsletter because we got lots of great stuff coming for you. My next interview will be with my good friend Taylor Coolis, who works at The Score, and we're going to be talking about programmatic advertising and sales tactics. Look forward to it. Cheers. Cheers.